Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of CCT Live, uh, coming to you every Thursday at 9 a.m. from the Cape Cod Times newsroom. I'm news editor Patrick Cassidy, and I'm joined today again by reporter Kristen Young, who covers the towns of Dennis and Yarmouth, and is one of several reporters over the last couple months who have covered the aftermath of the shooting death in April of Yarmouth Police Sergeant Sean Gannon, which is once again the big story uh, this week, and we'll talk a lot more about that. We'll also talk about uh, another story you wrote this week, Kristen, about a legal battle over a popular ice cream shop in Dennis that seems to be drawing to a close, as well as a story about new plans for an old inn in Falmouth and a family that returned yesterday to Brewster, where their son was seriously injured five years ago when his bicycle was struck by a van. You can take a look back at our past episodes and follow along at home on our website, capecottimes.com, as well as check us out on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Let's get right to it. Um, Kristen, this story about this ice cream shop has been going on for, for a year or so now. Uh, tell us, give us some background and then tell us what, what the most recent uh, uh, development is. That's right. So um, about a year ago, uh, last year, the ice cream smuggler actually opened in May, uh, or opened last year, despite not having a lease. Uh, their lease expired in May of 2017. Um, and, and they continued to operate at the shop without a lease, saying that the landlord had violated some terms of the lease that, that she offered um, the building up to a new possible tenant without giving them a chance to fairly negotiate. The Another lease. ice cream shop. Another ice yeah. cream shop, actually the Cape Cod Creamery. And um, that she also violated a term of the lease that may have required her to sell the building to the owners of the ice cream smuggler. Um, last summer, uh, Barnstable Superior Court judge ruled um, dismissing the case, saying that you know the owners of the ice cream smuggler failed to negotiate um, the lease on in a timely manner and that they, they didn't have any claim to be able to buy the building based on on the terms in the lease um, they opened there again this this spring and um, have continued to operate there until recently a mass appeals court judge again dismissed the case they had been staying in the building um, pending the results of the appeal they had the legal rights to remain there and and just recently about a month ago this mass appeals court upheld that that earlier dismissal saying that you know they don't have any rights to the building um, and they've now come to a legal settlement with the owners of the building saying that they can stay through the end of October and then after that they need to pack up and permanently close their doors um, it's been sort of a long bitter battle between the two sides which um, the ice cream smugglers are owned by the Catalanos Paul and Carter Catalano of Dennis and um, the Hassets, who uh, Patricia Hassett, who owns the building, actually built it in 1979 with her husband, and, and they opened. opened the yeah, ice they cream opened the original right ice cream smuggler yep. there. She said, "You know, I, I spoke with her daughter, who said the family actually brought most of the original flavors um, mm -hmm. it, when they opened and, and brought those recipes along, and that it's also a, you know a, a deep." They have a deep connection in their family to the business as well. Um, but she wants to, the, the owner wants to be able to hand down the building to her 
grant to her daughter and her grandson is 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 the case there. So, yeah, and and as you said, a, a bitter battle over something so sweet, ice cream. Mm-hmm. But the 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 Hassets have this history with the building and the business. But then the Catalanos have this history and this following. There have been people who have kind of come out on both sides. There was you know save the smug the smuggler, and then there was save the landlady was the kind of counter to that. So it has been a battle. It's been interesting, even with all that bitterness, that there has been this. Uh, it, it, there has been some civility, on, you know, on, on certainly on the part of them being allowed to stay there because it seems like she could have moved more quickly to evict them at different times and, you know, let it play out in court. And then again is is kind of reached this settlement saying we'll go to, to October. I guess the only thing from the appeals court that they could have gone was to go to the Supreme Judicial Court, which, you know, seems like a, a big step for something that's basically a lease disagreement over a business, but it uh, sounds like uh, uh, cooler heads have prevailed, if you will. Yes, so, yes. Um, well, we'll, we'll certainly uh, follow along if anything changes there, but that's, again, a story folks can check out uh, in uh, the, the paper at the website and, and all the backstories that go with it as well. Another story that uh, was reported on this week by uh, reporter Christine Legere, um, this is a nice one. This is a, a home in, uh, or was a home in Falmouth. It uh, is the Elm Arch Inn. It was actually originally built, the history of this building is fascinating. It was originally built in 1811 as a home for a, a, a captain. A, basically, his family became whaling captains. And it was a home for about 100 years. And then in 1911, it got converted into this inn and stood there as this inn for another 100 years. So this is a 200-year-old building. And it went up for sale in 2011. Um, and and you, you read this story, Kristen, kind of what, what what's going on with it now, and then we can talk more about it. Well, so um, it was purchased by um, Tim O'Connell, who who had volunteered in the past to um, provide um, presents at Christmas time to kids in the hospital who were suffering of cancer. And he he has this idea now to turn it into a home where families can come for vacations who, who have kids who are struggling with the disease. Um, certainly a very noble cause. I think the the um, past owners actually agreed to sell it to him for a significantly reduced price, understanding you know what he's hoping to do with the property, mm. which seems like it'll require a, a, some extensive renovations. Yeah. Um, I think they're trying to actually downsize the number of rooms from 18 bedrooms to about 10 to 12. Um, but they're hoping to be able to get some sponsorships from local businesses or families who maybe want to sponsor a room yeah. and they'll allow them to kind of decorate it in their, in their taste um, so that they can really get things up and running for these families sooner and rather than later. He's got some experience renovating old homes, so he's not coming to this you know, blind. He knows uh, what he's getting into. But that backstory on why he did this was really interesting. As you said, he used to um, anonymously donate uh, you know, various things to, uh, I think, the Floating Children's Hospital um, floating hospital for children in Boston. And at one point he had learned about this, uh, young man, uh, who was, I think eight years old, Griffin Mm -hmm. Sawyer. Um, and he had cancer and, and he, uh, had donated to that family, uh, again, anonymously at the time, uh, a vacation to a home that, that O'Connell had on Martha's Vineyard. And he said he got letters and cards, even though, you know, he didn't talk to the family directly. He got letters and cards, uh, about their experience and, and this, child had a, apparently a wonderful time there 
died unfortunately soon thereafter. And that kind of moved him to this idea of like developing a place where, again, these families can go, they can get a little bit of, uh, of a breather from the uh, intense uh, nature of, of treating a disease like cancer. Um, and a lot of people, I think, are behind him in this and like the idea. And he seems to be somebody who, who knows how to get things done. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. He's got a lot of work ahead of him, it sounds like, but probably a lot of support as well. Um, and it, it talked about a lot of work and, and a lot of support. There was a, a story in today's paper by uh, reporter Ethan Genter uh, about a uh, young man, still still young at this point, uh, Padraig Shaler, uh, who's from Ireland originally, and he had a, uh, a, a crash, essentially. He was on a bicycle uh, back in 2013 and headed to work. He was a J1 student. We have a lot of those around here. I think, actually, we even have a uh, a log in today's paper about a J1 student being hit by a vehicle while riding her bicycle. So it's something that happens. Uh, again, people come from other countries where it's different in terms of the interaction between bicycles and motor vehicles. In any case, Shaler was hit and seriously injured by a, a, a plumbing van out in Brewster on Route 6A. Um, and his family has been dealing with the, the aftermath of that. He was had a serious brain injury. Uh, was in a coma at Cape Cod Hospital before being transported, I think, back to Ireland and then to Germany for several years. And I had I'd spoken to his father a couple of years ago. We've written some follow-up stories. Um, but they were back on the Cape uh, this week, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and what were they doing here, uh, Kristen? Well, they, they were attempting to generate some more awareness um, regarding sharing space on the road for cyclists and, and also, I think, questioning the investigation a little bit um, into what happened that day and, and who was really at fault. Um, they, they actually made the walk, a, a one-mile walk, I think, down 6A, sort of recreating where Padraig had had traveled that day when he was hit um, toward toward the inn um, where he was hit. Um, and, and a number of people were joining them, supporters, um, family members, um, others who, who were involved in the case. Um, again, just trying to raise awareness that we need to really be aware of bikes on the road and give them their space and, um, you know, be understanding of, of um, laws that are, are there to protect them. And especially at this time of year, again, there are we have tourists who are showing up uh, for the first time. It's July 4th next week. We're going to have a lot more bicycles on the road. It's something that's become uh, more popular, which is biking from one place to another versus taking your, your vehicle. But there are still a lot of cars out there. And again, these J1 students who are foreign students who are able to come here and work for the summer um, are out there. And uh, it seems like every year there's an ongoing discussion about how to protect them better because some of them show up, you'll see them, uh, you know, bicycling. They don't necessarily have helmets on or have reflectors or anything like that. They're, you know, coming here to make money and they, they are able to get a hold of a bike to get back and forth. Um, but as you said, the family, uh, Shaler's family had some serious questions about the way the investigation was handled and, and uh, even uh, claimed that they thought the investigation had been biased in favor of the van driver and saying he was a local, our son was from Ireland, and you, you kind of made your decision too quickly. Uh, the Brewster police, it's important to point out, say they stand by their investigation. They, uh, the chief of the police currently, uh, Heath Eldridge, uh, sent us a statement saying, uh, you know, they feel obviously uh, terrible and their thoughts are with the uh, the Shaler family um, and they're they're glad to see him at a point where he can return uh, here uh, physically uh, come back he's in a wheelchair um, and and certainly has 
uh, major issues that he's still dealing with and will deal with for the rest of his life um, and his family will deal with. But but again, Eldridge said, we stand by our investigation. We forwarded actually at the family's request, the attorney general got in touch with us back in, this is the police, back in, I think, 2015. And, and we forwarded all our, our documents to them about the investigation. And he said there was no impropriety found in terms of how the investigation was handled. He also pointed out a long list that's in the story today about the actions that the Brewster police, Brewster town officials have taken uh, since 2013 to try and increase awareness and, and do some of the things. There seems like there's some uh, um, places where the, the police, the town officials and the shalers uh, certainly agree on, on the types of things that need to be done in terms of increasing awareness, like you said. Um, so again, I guess the lesson is everybody should be careful out there, whether they're on a bike or they're in a car and, and near a bicycle or near a pedestrian. It's a, uh, it can be dangerous on the roads and everybody should watch out. Um, we'd rather not report those things in our newspaper. Um, so moving on to, to really, uh, again, the big story we've been talking about since uh, April 12th, which is the shooting death of Yarmouth Police Sergeant Sean Cannon. Uh, Kristen, you've been working pretty much since that, that day, uh, more or less, on, on uh, trying to understand uh, the history, the criminal history behind uh, the man, Thomas Latanowicz, who is accused of uh, shooting uh, Sergeant Cannon. And uh, I guess if you could talk a little bit about that process and, and, and what you did uh, to gather this information and the story that ran in Sunday's paper, which uh, was, was incredible in terms of how it was put together and, and the amount of information there. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So I think in, in, it's been a little more than two months since Sergeant Gannon was killed. And uh, there have been a lot of questions in the community about why that happened, how this person, Thomas Latanowicz, who had so many prior charges, could possibly be free um, despite those charges. Um, so what I did was I went to the courthouse and just, you know, pulled all the files um, related to him and just started going through piece by piece. And um, what I found, first of all, was um, that, that it's the, the court files don't always paint a, a very clear picture. Um, some of the statutes of limitations on keeping files meant that some of the charges, you know, from his early years um, didn't have a lot of documentation. Those, those, those records after 10 years are allowed to be destroyed um, in order to keep paper storage, mm -hmm. um, you know, at a, at a capacity that's reasonable. Um, so, you know, piecing together the parts um, was, was a little challenging, but um, also, what I did find was that he had, I think, 75 prior charges. Some of them carried as many as 26 counts, um, most related to drugs, guns, um, assaults that were often violent and, and sometimes against over and over again against the same person. Um, but I, what I wanted to understand was how it was that he was continually being released. And so um, in speaking with with defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges, the thing that, that sort of kept circling back is this burden of proof required by our legal system in order to keep someone in jail or in prison um, is, is a very high burden. It's a very high standard of proof that's kind of designed to keep the rest of us free, but also when you apply it to someone who is a repeat or a violent offender, it, it poses the hazard of letting them walk. And um, by the rest of us, you mean people who aren't guilty of mm -hmm. a crime but may have been accused of a crime and, and meeting that high burden of proof is meant to ensure that somebody is not falsely convicted, falsely imprisoned. Uh, again, we've seen many national cases of, of kind of people being vindicated after many years being behind mm -hmm. bars, and that's what they're trying to avoid with this high burden of proof. Sure, and one of the things prosecutors said is that, it, you know, in a, they declined to talk specifically about Latana, which is case, citing the ongoing investigation about him, um, but they did talk a little bit about the frequency of, of 
victims or witnesses not being willing to testify or cooperating with a case. You know, a lot of times, especially for these victims, they've been traumatized. They're, you know, sometimes for witnesses, they're afraid to, to speak in court um, in fear of retaliation. I think one of the officials you talked to even said, and we've heard this before, of, of people being in court and just a look or mm-hmm. like, you know, knowing that they're there acts as an intimidating factor and, and then they'll refuse to testify because of that. Exactly. And and so what, what prosecutors said is that sometimes it'll be even, you know, the morning of the trial, they'll think that they have someone coming in to testify and that person won't show up. And that could be an instance where the case um, then has to be dismissed because they, they don't have enough evidence to push forward a case, um, you know, without that witness there. Uh, prosecutors said sometimes they rely on other things such as, um, you know, various medical documents or um, 911 calls to try to submit those as evidence, but they're not always allowed either. And that's where that high burden of proof can come into yeah. play again. You have yep. to, it has to be very specific and meet very specific criteria as evidence, um, you know, utterances of in, in the in the moment may be admissible in some cases, whereas you, you have take some time and you think about what you're going to say and then you say something, then they're worried about you making it up, basically not being true. Exactly. And that's actually what happened um, specifically in one of the cases here. There was a 911 call, um, you know, regarding a case where, where um, Latanowicz had, had, I believe it was on a pregnant woman, an assault on a pregnant woman, and she refused to testify. They wanted to admit the 911 call, and it wasn't allowed because the call actually happened about 20 minutes after Latanowicz had fled the scene, um, so it wasn't allowed as an excited utterance because that's supposed to happen in the moment. Um, but it was really, you know, sort of... Um, unbelievable to see the number of times that he had been arrested for something and, and let go either on bail or because the case was dismissed and then picked up again, you know, just, just as, as little as a few days later in some instances for another crime. Um, the bail issue is something that we talked about as well. Um, I spoke with a superior court judge who said that when they issue bail, judges are acting in accordance with the law and that the law, um, starting with the Constitution, but all the way up through state statutes that we have here in Massachusetts requires judges to only um, administer bail as sort of a, a, that's not the default. The default is that the person should be let go without bail. Presumption is that they would be let go. And and that bail can only be administered if it's believed that the person will not return to face charges in court or or their next court appearance. Um, And that that bail amount legally has to be set to the lowest possible amount to ensure the person's return, um, which which I found to be eye-opening. Um, well, it's interesting. I think you mentioned in the story, if not, we talked about it, the, the 17 uh, factors that can go into mm-hmm. bail. But one of those is a criminal history factor, mm-hmm. which it, it would be interesting to know whether that's something they could use to say, well, is criminal history, in this case, quite extensive, um, if you could say, well, we we're worried and he and he he also has instances of alleged uh mm-hmm. flights from police um but it, one of the other interesting things you said is like as long as it's not a conviction mm-hmm. it can't really be used in determining this type of thing it's got to be something that he was convicted of otherwise it's just an allegation that was either dismissed or something along those lines and can't exactly. play into those later decisions exactly and and for many of these cases um latino was not convicted so a lot of these judges when they were considering his bail weren't allowed to consider those past allegations um yeah. and they may have even known about them mm-hmm. but if they consider them it's it's probably uh, a means of appeal if, mm-hmm. if you ended up on a conviction then. The other thing we talked about was um, the ability to hold someone as a danger, which, you know, you, you see all these violent charges adding up and sort of the logical thing is, well, this person's, you know, probably not 
safe to be out in society? Because there's something can be done there. And um, what what I found when in speaking with prosecutors and with judges is that dangerousness hearings require an even higher burden of proof than just holding someone on bail alone. And they actually require their own evidentiary hearing. Um, in order to get someone held as a danger, you have to sort of request for that. The prosecution has to request that at the first court appearance, which is either an arraignment in district court or an indictment yep. in superior court. Um, and then they have three days then to sort of put together enough evidence for this hearing that the person is actually a danger to either a specific person or the community at large. Um, and that those hearings can often require testimony from victims or for evidence to be presented. And one of the judges told me, you know, that a lot of times prosecutors don't really want to risk exposing their entire case just three days after an arraignment or an indictment or put victims on the stand that early in um, because they know they'll have to be taking the stand again later on. Especially with the bar so high to get the dangerousness finding, they, they may think it's a roll of the dice if they if they don't get it they've now as you said exposed mm-hmm. their case and 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 for not um and there's also a limit to a certain extent it's a what 120 days that you can be held prior to trial uh the point being i believe not to just have somebody held forever and to probably go towards an, an expedient trial in any exactly. case and make, it, make it happen quickly it, it seems like a lot a lot to go through to be able to have mm-hmm. a you know a, a maximum of one 120 days that yeah. someone can be held um but you know I, I also spoke with local law enforcement chief frank frederson said you know that a lot of these things need to change he wants to see the standards for dangerousness hearings sort of the bar be set a little bit lower so that people who are violent and and maybe pose a threat to mm-hmm. the public or to law enforcement are behind bars um and, and that they're off the streets um and that's something that he's really been pushing for working with other chiefs, chiefs around the state is for some of these legislative changes to happen. But but again, as you lay this out, and I think um, it, it's evident to anybody who takes the time to read the story, uh, which is lengthy but worth it, um, there's n- no one answer. Again, Chief Fredrickson from Yarmouth uh, has obviously been very vocal about the need for change. Other people have been very vocal about the need for change. And I think they realize that, that it's not that you can just, you know, go and change one law. There's a lot of things kind of uh, playing into these different decision-making processes at the judiciary. And on the side of the judiciary, they want to make sure that that they remain independent and their their actions, you know, if they were second-guessing uh, judges outside of the appeal process, you know, all the time, the judiciary would be bogged down forever and you would never, you know, get anything done. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, problem to solve or, and, and many problems really, if you look at it uh, in other ways. Um, I think you also talked about parole and probation Mm -hmm. and that was something that played into this as well. Um, what was interesting to see is that, you know, even after Latinovich served what was really his only adult prison sentence, he served a sentence, um, uh, he was sentenced to four to five years at a state prison, um, was released after about two years and three months on parole, and then actually um, violated, or in some cases, um, violations were, were he was accused of violations and they were later withdrawn um, after several incidents. I think there were three times when he was speeding, you know, over 30 miles above the limit um, without a license in, in any of the three cases. Mm. Once was an OUI. He pleaded guilty to one OUI um, and was actually not returned to prison then. It later triggered a 
parole violation. So he was sent back for about three months. But um, I think the question there is, you know, they had, there was this ability potentially to send him back for longer and, and that wasn't well, how it done. played out. Um, he was also arrested after being released from prison on several violent charges, um, once for allegedly strangling um, a woman who was pregnant with his child, another time for allegedly stabbing a man who was stopped at a traffic light in Yarmouth. Um, and and so the, the, what happened in those cases was that the first case, um, the, the witness refused to testify. Again, the, yeah. the second case, um, again, the victim was not cooperative. The man who was stabbed was not cooperative with the investigation. And then also, um, you know, police had actually arrested him in that case, but um, they had pulled him over and the stop was found to be um, without probable cause for them to stop the car um, or to search Latana, which he was found to have a, a knife right. on him that was about the same length as described by the victim of the attack. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was thrown out as evidence based on police not having probable cause. The other cause. thing, it, again, getting evidence thrown out or suppressed, it can can hinder a prosecution's mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, case, obviously. Um, but but again, as even you list off those, it's, it's amazing when, as you said earlier, you read through the story, and we purposely, and, and you wrote it this way, included all the charges. And if you read through it, um, the exception is when he goes for a period of time without being arrested mm -hmm. on something. I mean, that's that's kind of unusual um, if he goes, uh, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks or, you know, at the most a couple of months uh, without being arrested on something. So a, a lot in that story. Um, and again, I uh, encourage people to go read that story and also to read another story you wrote about um, SWAT uh, not being called to the scene for the arrest warrant but being called afterwards for obviously the response to the shooting itself and local law enforcement uh, explained kind of the criteria for SWAT. Again, they won't get into this case specifically because of the ongoing investigation, but they do give us some information about uh, what, when and why SWAT's called. And that's another story that uh, encourage people to go take a look at uh, at com. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you for your reporting on that. Um, Looking ahead here uh, to the to the weekend again next week's July fourth uh, in the middle of the week but uh, this weekend uh, you know folks will be starting to show up some of them may go to Nosset uh, have you ever eaten at Liam's uh, restaurant in Nosset a while back but won't be eating there this year you won't be eating there nobody will be eating at Liam's this year it was uh, succumbed to the erosion out there at Nosset and was torn down and what they've replaced it with are are, are food trucks um, and so uh, our reporter Ethan Genter takes a look at the the food trucks that are going to be out there and and you can read that in uh hopefully saturday's paper um thanks a lot for joining us uh we appreciate your time uh and share uh you know the link with your friends and tell them about it uh feel free to email any of us Kristen, or, or anybody in the newsroom with any uh, story ideas or tips uh thanks a lot for joining us uh good morning and good luck just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.